Welcome, and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. The anniversary of the attack on America provides the context for today's sermon. First Pres Senior Pastor Dan Chun preaches against division and for unity. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that my words will be your words, and may the words of the gospel really go into our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as uh, Phyllis mentioned in her prayer, we are reminded of something that happened many years ago uh, on this day. Twenty-one uh, years ago, um, a group of religious extremists attacked the New York uh, World Trade Center, exploding the Twin Towers and killing thousands of people uh, from many nations. And we have lit a candle uh, in our sanctuary every Sunday since then. Uh, my mom was from New York, and I have five aunts and many cousins who worked and lived nearby. Um, one of my cousins is still suffering from, from that in a medical sense. Um, and that uh, terrible day touched my family in a personal way. Uh, as you know, I lost a distant cousin in the attack. And fortunately, my first cousin escaped one of the burning towers before it collapsed. Um, to this day, my cousin can't talk about it uh, because of horrible memories of people who had jumped from higher floors, landing on the ground while he was running out of the building. 2,763 people died in the two towers, including 343 firefighters and paramedics and 23 police officers, 37 police authority, uh, Port Authority uh, police officers. It's a national, it was a national tragedy that we still think about today. Uh, religious extremists hijacked uh, four airplanes and carried out their evil attack on not only the World Trade Center, uh, but as Phyllis prayed, also the Pentagon, where 189 people were killed, including the 64 passengers on American Airlines Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon. Uh, separately, on United Flight uh, 93, uh, 44 people died when the brave unarmed passengers fought the terrorists and caused their plane to crash in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, before it could reach its target, which may have been the Capitol building or the White House, uh, which in flight time was a mere 20 minutes away. We now know the attack came out of Al-Qaeda and 19 Muslim extremists hijacked the plane. For any religion, when one becomes an extremist, there is danger that undermines the whole intent and purpose. For Christianity, Jesus knew very early that a kind of extremism would form and be hurtful to the future Christian faith, a form characterized by legalism and rules and regulations and ideology and self-righteousness by those who abide by it would then miss the whole point of the gospel. And in fact, that kind of thinking is what killed Jesus. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Easy for us to criticize the extremism of other philosophies or other religions. It's also easy to miss the tax, uh, toxic danger of extremism in our own faith and church if we are not careful. If we forego a loving relationship with God and give higher priority to just following legalism or rules, then we will evolve into a self-righteous people 
whose twin towers of faith will someday be taken down. Jesus, the premier teacher, and who is our Lord, our God, often taught in parables to make his point. As a way of honoring the Lord and his word, please stand if you're able as I read for us one of our Lord's famous parables. This is from the Gospel of Luke in the 15th chapter. It says this, All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable, Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, and saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So as our story begins, Jesus is having a very bad public relations day. The Pharisees and the scribes, or teachers of the law, were criticizing him for hanging out with sinners, eating and drinking with them. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, the criticism Jesus got was that he must be a drunkard or a glutton for doing such a thing and doing it with tax collectors who would who were considered to be the worst sinners. He was just eating and drinking. He was not a drunkard or a glutton, but yes, he was eating with the social outcasts of the day, and that was a no-no to the religious leaders. Now, notice how the Pharisees and the scribes don't refer to Jesus as rabbi, a respected teacher. They simply refer to him as a fellow. They said, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And earlier in the passage, you know, they mentioned tax collectors. I always take offense when I read such verses because my dad worked for the IRS. He worked for the Department of Treasury and then became a tax collector and helped lead the auditing division. That also meant he had a lot of friends as they didn't want to be audited. That's a joke. But since my dad was a tax collector, that would mean Jesus would eat with him. Yeah. So before we go too far, let me explain briefly who were these religious parties, people in first century Israel with whom Jesus had to deal with, um, in addition uh, to those Pharisees in the passage. And you might find some of these, in a sense, in America. First, there are the Essenes. 
and who were also conservative and separatists in that they withdrew from society and moved into kind of a monastic community. They would strive to live in poverty and purity to the Jewish religion. Okay, not too bad. Then there were the zealots, a term that the Jewish historian Josephus came up with. They were politically radical. They had, they wanted to undermine with force the ruling power, you know, a, 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 a um, capital breach would be fine with them. And some became terrorists, like the 9-11 terrorists. All of them were politically active. In fact, Jesus invited Simon the Zealot to be one of his apostles. Then there were the Sadducees, unlike the Zealots. They were close to the Roman government, and they were the elite educated. They were allowed by the Romans to run all of the cultural institutions. Uh, but to get to this kind of position, they had to liberalize their religions and, in a sense, secularize them. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the concept of resurrection. They didn't believe in angels uh, nor the spirit. They didn't care about the details of the law. They just kind of believed it in general. And then we come to the Pharisees, and they were the popular party of the middle class. Unlike the Sadducees, they believed in every single detail of the law. They were super conservative and they were against the extreme political uh, point of view of the zealots and all of their political activism, they, unlike the Sadducees, did believe in the doctrine of the resurrection, angels, and the spirit. They were also against the hyper-spirituality of the Essenes. Instead, the Pharisees believed that following the rules and the thousands of laws they had created would allow people to earn God's love. And it's against this backdrop that Jesus was being criticized. It was against this backdrop that Jesus was saying, but my community, as Sean led us in the song, my beautiful city, my church will be different. Every person will be welcomed, even those society deems as horrible sinners, especially those who know they are sinners, especially those who know that they need help and are not necessarily super moral people. It's not the rituals, the rules, and religious regulations that are important. It's the loving, intimate relationship with the loving God that counts, that is possible, even for cultural rule breakers. Do you remember... Um, Maybe you didn't know this. You know, when Jesus healed a person on the Sabbath, the Pharisees said that was a sin, even though a healing is good, because Jesus broke the rule of no healing on the Sabbath, because they thought that was work. Jesus thought that was dumb and told them so. Same for when the disciples pick heads of wheat on the Sabbath so they could eat, but the Pharisees considered that as work, and no work should happen on the Sabbath. Jesus told them that was kind of dumb. Jesus said, if your sheep falls into a well and it is on the Sabbath, then save it. And don't be dumb and let it drown. It's not a sin. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist called both the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers. And Jesus later said, 
to be aware of their incorrect legalism and incorrect teaching. Now, this might be a shock to some of you, but this is Jesus at his radical best. He rips up the foundation of how we think religions should be, where we strive to earn God's love by following rules and being really good people. But here's where it gets really interesting. When people in the Bible do break some serious rules that results in sins like adultery or embezzling or sexual immorality or betrayal, Jesus forgives and welcomes them into the fold, even though they haven't fully repented or on their way to repenting. Christianity is different. It says not only um, you can't, but you are unable to follow the rules. Even the good ones, like the Ten Commandments. We are sinful. We need help. But the good news is that God really loves you and will forgive you. And he can give you the power to live a better life. And it's not because you can earn your salvation, because you can't. It's a gift. But because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, says, I love you, and if you stick with me, you will have a more fulfilled and flourishing life. But don't be religious about it in the sense of don't think that's only about the rules and and religious activities. Jesus is against that kind of being religious, especially if it leads one to be proud because you do more religious activities than other people. Jesus wanted everyone to know that everyone is to be welcomed and is hanging out with so-called sinners and those scorned in society are actually the ones he wants to know that they are welcome. It bothers the religious people, the Pharisees, that Jesus actually, in their words, welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, are there sinners, people, who do not think or act like you, that you think they should not be welcomed in the church? Or are you the one who thinks, well, I'm the sinner, and I can't go to church or be with Jesus because he would never accept me? If I walked into a church, there would be lightning and thunder, God showing his disapproval. I'm not good enough. Maybe some of you online are thinking that. If so, you're actually right, not the lightning and thunder part. Um, you are and I are not good enough because following Jesus is not about being good enough. It's the acceptance that we are not good enough and we get in trouble when we think we are good enough or smart enough or talented enough that we even don't need Jesus who calls himself actually the good shepherd. For me, church is like a recovery group. Every day or every week, I need a reminder of how I need help and how I need a shepherd who gives me hope and forgiveness, a savior. I need his wisdom, his power, to forgive and to love. And we need to be humble that we aren't perfect. And we need help and guidance. 
Remember in today's Bible passage, Jesus asked the question, which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and, 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 and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who say they need no repentance. Now, this is an critically important parable for two reasons. First, Jesus is so happy when one repents and comes back to him, his flock, his recovery group, in a sense. Now, think about it. Sheep are not very smart. And if you are a sheep who goes off leaving the flock, it's not because the sheep is saying, oh, I think I'll take a stroll today to see the scenery. A not smart sheep thinks it can wander away, feed itself, protect itself, and find water by itself. But it can't. It needs a shepherd in the wilderness to lead it to green pastures and still waters and to protect it from the lion and the bear, to find healthy grass, to sleep at night safely, to at times have someone heal its hooves or take off troublesome ticks. A horse without a trainer can survive, but a sheep will die without a shepherd. Tim Keller quoted a shepherd this way, who said, it's a horrible experience, horrible experience to go after a sheep. The sheep runs to and fro, it loses direction, and when you finally find it, it's difficult to round it up and bring it home unless you have a dog to scare it in the right direction. The lost sheep runs to and fro, and when you find it, you must seize it, cast it down, tie its forelegs together, and then its hind legs together, and you put it over your shoulders, and then you carry it home. Now, it looks so sweet, doesn't it? Oh, the shepherd carrying the sheep. I'm a little sheep, and he loves me. No, he seized it and threw it down, and he ties it together, and then he carries it. And some of you are having troubles in your life <coughs> because you will not look at life through that grid, that you will not think you're sheep. You know what God should be doing, and you know how things ought to be doing. You know if he loved you, you say, well, he shouldn't be treating me this way. But you're sheep, and sheep happens. <coughs> Let me finish the sentence. And sheep happens to think it knows what is best, but it doesn't. What a great time to have a cough. The Pharisee, in a sense, I follow the rules. God should love me. I am owed a good life because I follow the religion of rules. And I certainly don't want God to accept those other people who don't follow the rules. And I don't even want to be with the people who don't follow the rules, like I do. And there are people in our thinking who we don't want to be in our church or move to our country, and we need to evaluate that in Jesus' eyes. Do we know for ourselves that, as Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who believe they need no repentance. Do you believe Jesus when he says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents? Now, repentance means turning around from one direction to another. In the Bible, in the Greek, it's metanoia, which so means turning around. And, and can we accept that we are like sheep that are not smart enough to save ourselves and we need someone like Jesus? It is Jesus we need to follow, not the rules and regulations. Following the rules will not make him love us better. He already loves us so much that he died for us. And if we turn towards him, can we imagine what it means that angels rejoice when we repent? There are thousands and thousands, I don't know, maybe millions of angels in heaven. So imagine a packed stadium of angels applauding and cheering you and giving you a standing ovation because you decided to follow Christ. That we once were lost, we admit, but now we're found. Now, could we admit that it was amazing grace and we don't shy away from this word, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Into the loving arms of God. So don't be so religious that you think you are so righteous and then look down on other people who are not righteous, especially after God saved you in his amazing grace. Now, do we have a heart that others might know Jesus and that we're actively trying to lead others to this loving God? Do we actually have a heart of evangelism that all followers of Christ should have some degree of? Now, hear this parable, also the Gospel of Luke, in the 10th chapter. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other one was a despised tax collector. Oh, not again. Okay, tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. I tithe. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he, as he prayed and said he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you that this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So honestly, who are you in this story? Are you the one who says, I am a religious, moral person because I follow the rules, I tithe, I go to church, I even have fasted, so God owes me, he owes me a good life, look at all that I've done for him. Or are we, the dumb sheep, who thinks, I can make it in life without a shepherd. I'm the master of my faith, the captain of my soul. Who needs God? Are you the lost sheep that is so happy that Jesus, the good shepherd, has chased you down and brought you into the fold and you admit you are not the brightest in the herd nor the sharpest in the toolbox? 
Or are you the Pharisee who prays and says, Pharisee was on this side, thank God that I'm not like the other people who are cheaters and sinners and adulterers. Or are you the cheater, the sinner, and the adulterer who's so glad that Jesus found you, carried you, welcomes you back into his family? And true, back then, the tax collectors ripped off their own people by charging even more than the Romans demanded, and then they kept the difference for themselves. Are you the one who says, oh, God, yep, I did that. Be merciful to me because I'm a sinner, for I'm more of a taker than a giver in life. Now hang on to your seats. I'm going to go one step deeper. Ready for this? We're going to go deeper, and this is something not everyone thinks about. So everyone, so the church welcomes everyone. I mean everyone. So now in the church, how do we get along with each other? Great to be welcoming, but now I have to be in community with this person who's so different from me theologically, maybe politically, maybe ethnically, maybe culturally. And do we say, Ah, no, I'd rather just hang out with the righteous people like me, those who think and look like me. Jesus, you really want a church that's so mixed? Really? Jesus welcomes everyone, even the sinners. He wants to hang out with them, fellowship, and eat and drink with them. Even the ones that you might think shouldn't be here. The ones you might think are sinners. The ones who might not agree with you theologically or in lifestyle or politically. So now that everyone is welcomed, how do we get along? How do we all stay in and not leave because we don't like people who think differently than we, or do we reject others so they want to leave? Ah, time for another history lesson here. If we look at the early church in the city of Antioch, in the book of Acts, chapter 11, it is Antioch that the term Christian is first used and they didn't know, the people back then didn't know what else to call them. So they called them Christians. They have never seen in the history of the world a group like these Christians who met in what they would call the church, this beautiful city. It was mind-blowing. Why? You know, I was listening to a, a pastor recently, Darren Whitehead, who quoted an author, Larry Hurtado, uh, who claimed in his research there were five firsts that the world had never seen in any community as displayed in this New Testament Christianity. Number one, it was the first multi-ethnic religion. It wasn't just for the Jews or just for the Greeks or just for the Romans or the Syrians. All could be included. In the first century church, you would find Africans and Syrians and Persians and Jews, East Indians and Egyptians. You know, Antioch <clears throat> sat on the Orontes River uh, on the trade routes between China in the east and Rome in the west, and some believe the Chinese were in the early church, yes. as well as the Italians and the Romans. So no wonder noodles and spaghetti came together eventually via Marco Polo, mamma mia. You heard it first from your pasta. <laughs> So 
So there is a melding of cultures of Greek and Hellenistic, Roman, Armenian, Mesopotamian, Arab, Byzantine, Turkish, and maybe even Asian. Second, it was the first religion to serve the poor. That was a core value. Serving the poor was mandatory, essential to the faith. And Jesus said it many times in ways so graphic that if you didn't serve the poor, you would end up in eternal punishment. 25th chapter of Matthew. The church was for all. The rich, the poor, the middle class. Think of the very first convent a convent, convert in Mesopotamia in the city of Philippi. First convert was a woman named Lydia who sold purple goods. She was rich. The next convert, the very next one, was a slave girl. She was poor. The third convent, why do you say convent? Well, that's kind of a Christian community too. So the third convert was um, the Philippian jailer who was middle class. So the church in its infancy served all. Third, Christianity did not retaliate against persecution. The Christians were heavily persecuted. All of the apostles were martyred except for John, who was sent off in exile, maybe on the island of Patmos. Tradition had it that the apostles were speared to death, given to wild animals, boiled in oil, crucified. Thousands of Christians were killed and even targeted by emperors like Diocletian. So, in response, there was no Christian underground army, no armed revolution, no insurrection against the Roman Empire. They preached love your enemy, turn the other cheek, forgiveness, grace. You know, Jesus said, those who use the sword will die by the sword, and they held to that. Number four, Christianity was against infanticide. Roman law and its religion um, saw nothing morally wrong with infanticide or with exposure, meaning abandoning newborns on garbage dumps or even dung heaps. But the writings of the early church confirmed these uh, uh, Greco-Roman practices, and the early Christians were against that and against gladiator battles and public executions. And lastly, this was the first religion that was countercultural with sexuality. The first century Christian community was against fornication, which was any sex outside of marriage. They were against adultery and incest and polygamy. And so here we have a new community in which Jesus thought everyone should be welcome and we would live in radically different ways. So look at that first group of disciples that Jesus called together. You have Matthew a tax collector who was hated by the Jews. Then you have Judas, who might have been an Essene. Then you have Simon, who was a zealot. And then you have James and John, who people call the sons of thunder because they're loud and they're boisterous, boisterous and they're proud and they're arrogant, hungry for power. And though not an apostle, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, was on the inner circle. So much so, did you know he helped embalm Jesus after the Lord's crucifixion? And those are just the men, also in the early church. Jesus welcomed Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons. Seven! Wouldn't that be fun? She would be fun to play with in charades or improv. Like, Ew, who are you seeing now, man? And then also people like woman at the well, who had five husbands and was sleeping with another man and maybe an adulterous woman who was about to be stoned. But now as everyone is welcome and is learning what it means to be a Christian, there has to be unity. 
especially because people are so different, economically diverse, ethnically diverse, culturally diverse, from politically different parties. And as your pastor, I'm reading these passages in the Bible, and I'm thinking, we can face any challenge in the future if we are unified. If there are money problems or pandemic problems or attendance issues or technological issues, we can overcome them. But if you, we are not unified, we are in trouble. It will be toxic and divisive if we are not unified in Christ. With all of our diversity, we must stay unified and major in the majors and not the minors. Jesus himself called his unique church into being. In the Bible, unity is extremely important and it's proclaimed and people are called out if they are not. Is it not interesting that Paul's letter to that first century church, again, in the city of Philippi, um, where Lydia and the slave girl and Philippine jailer were, he wrote this. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you to True comrade of my work, help these women because they toiled with me in the gospel together with Clement and my other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. I find this incredibly interesting. It's such like an unknown verse. Nobody preaches on it. I find this in incredibly interesting that unity was so important to the Apostle Paul. He regarded it as something so important that writing from a cell in Rome he would call out these two women, Euodio and Syntyche, by, by name in a church newsletter and say to the early church in Philippi, these women must be reconciled. It's bad for the church. And there's some drama going on that Paul fears might split the church. In the Old Testament, we read of the importance of unity. It says in Psalm 133, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, uh, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robe. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord ordained his blessing life forever. So as Moses consecrated his brother Aaron, that's what it means, and his sons to serve as the Lord's priests, so God is saying, you are his ministers, and you are the messengers of the gospel, so be unified. Nothing turns people off as badly as having no unity. And so I end with these two challenges. What is the Lord saying, and what is he saying to you? First, maybe some of you need to reconcile with someone to bring about unity. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe with a friend, maybe a colleague. Maybe you have hurt someone, or maybe you have been hurt. And this is a call today for reconciliation. Second, maybe some of you might want to reconcile with God. Some of you might be thinking, whether in this room or online, hey, um, actually, Dan, I am that person you spoke of earlier that I don't think I'm good enough. Um, I am that sinner who wonders if God loves me, and I'm the one who has blown it. So please, here today, 
that Jesus loves all people. He loves sinners. He died for you and for me. In fact, it is our proclaiming loudly and clearly as a Christian that I am a sinner. And that is our admission ticket to the church. For we are a hospital of sinners, not a museum of saints. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer now for unity and for all of us to draw closer to Christ and reconcile with God or with others. Please join me. Lord, thank you that you came to create a new community that was so different from any other community on earth. It's challenging and hard, but it's right. Lord, there may be some here who need to reconcile with someone. They've hurt someone or have been hurt by someone. But they can't do it on their own. They're going to need your Holy Spirit, that unconditional love that you could offer, and your wisdom for them to do that. So I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is now flowing through these wonderful people, giving them the power and the courage and boldness to reconcile with someone, maybe in the family, maybe in the office, maybe in the neighborhood, maybe with someone in the community. So Lord, Come, Holy Spirit, come and flow into these people's souls and hearts. And then, Lord, there's some people here who might be ready who are saying, you know, if this is true, that Jesus really accepts everybody, that even though I might know that I have blown it and I'm away from perfect and I've done things I shouldn't have done, But Jesus, if this is true, that you came for someone like me, if it's true that you died for me, that it would erase all my sin, that you offer me a life in heaven, that you give me supernatural power through your Holy Spirit to lead a new life and a different life. I pray that if there's anyone here or online who would like to commit their life to Christ or realize it's time for a recalibration and a recommitment, that they just silently pray that to God now, to you, Lord, asking for forgiveness and asking you to come into their lives. And we'll take a moment of silence as people online or in this room can pray that prayer to God. Lord, some have prayed that prayer, and you've said right now, there are angels rejoicing, applauding, cheering that someone made that decision. And if online, on our community out there, if someone made that decision, can they just hit that button that says, I commit my life to Christ, and maybe hit the button of, I would like to pray with someone, and seal that. And if anyone in this room made that wonderful decision. Could you just raise your hand right now and I, as your friend and pastor, will confirm that before the Lord. Lord, you know our hearts. And right now, 
Angels are rejoicing. In Christ's name, amen. Before I, I close with the benediction, if you would like to pray with someone and the Holy Spirit was doing something in your life during this uh, worship service, the prayer team would love to meet with you right through those glass doors in the corner. And of course, as a community, we would love to have uh, coffee or just fellowship with you at the Hebrews Espresso Bar, which is free for all you visitors here today. So receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and his... Uh, mercy and grace and love of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell in your hearts forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. Now, sometimes that phrase sounds like a cliche, but it's not. It's the truth. It's not about the processes. It's all about Jesus and his love for us. If you want to catch up on or listen again to previous services, visit our websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. You can also find First Prez sermons on most major podcast services and on YouTube. First Prez invites you to church. Join us in person or online. Services are Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. at the Ko'olau campus. 10 a.m. at The Vine or online through our websites. And remember, when you visit the website, check out the news page to keep up with all that's happening at church. You can also sign up for emails, listen to or watch sermons, and lots more. And as always, if there's anything First Prez can do for you, please reach out through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Senior Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2022 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.